The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network. Phone lines are open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to the Line of Fire. It's Friday, which means you've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines open, 866-34-TRUTH. I'm going right to the phones after this one announcement. Uh, Major tragedy in Jerusalem. Last night, uh, there is a celebration called Lagba Omer, the 33rd day in the counting of the Omer, which is the end of Passover to Pentecost to Shavuot. There is a gathering at the grave site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, second century, one of the leading sages in rabbinic Judaism. And Israel is getting past COVID, uh, uh, COVID issues now as far as public going out and no, no masks and, and just going back to normal life much more. And the ultra-Orthodox community, they've been pushing back against many of the restrictions all along. But now this is something where they could gather in public. Maybe 10,000 could be better accommodated in the location there. There's a narrow tunnel through which people pass at a certain point. But there are 100,000 there celebrating, lighting fires. And um, there was a stampede as people trying to get through the tunnel. Some claim the police had one area barricaded. Whatever happened, about 45 people died. Yeah, about 45 people died. Many others injured. So when you, when, you, when you think of the size of Israel, 6 million people, 6 million Jews, 9 million people total, but six, roughly 6 million Jews there. So it's, it's less than 150th the population of America. So, so you multiply this, this would be, you know, several thousand people dying, being injured. Uh, and these are all ultra-Orthodox Jews. So it's, it's, it's really rocked the nation immediately after the celebration, life back to normal. So pray in the midst of this that God's grace and mercy would be revealed. All right, we go to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. Sims in McAllen, Texas, thanks for calling the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate the ministry. Thank you for taking my call again. Uh, I have a question uh, concerning Psalm 109. I've... uh, I've reached that point in sort of our weekly Bible study, and the way I've always tried to approach these type of psalms, you know, which have these sort of imprecatory prayers in them, is that the primary concern is of the author is, you know, the justice of God, that the righteousness would reign in the land, and in this case amongst Israel, and that wickedness would be blotted out. So I'm trying to think about sort of how I would apply this in sort of our post-New uh, Testament sort of context, and obviously I, I would agree with you from a few weeks ago when you were talking about President Biden that we should not be praying that, you know, that his children be fatherless and his wife a widow and, and what, and, and these things, but uh, I my thought is that it, it is appropriate to ask and to pray that, you know, wickedness itself be removed. Uh, in other words, not that right, the right. Lord would Right, kill so, somebody or whatnot. Right, exactly, Sim. So on the one hand, 
the psalmist at times may be expressing his own frustration, his own anguish and anger. You know, you have Jeremiah lashing out, you know, wipe them out, Lord. And so there are human beings, right? And, you know, just as the psalmist is saying, how long? And I, and I, I wet my pillow with tears, that these could be human expressions. But let's say that they, that they were inspired prayers. Then it's exactly what you're saying. It wasn't personal vengeance. He hurt me. I, I want to hurt him. Rather, it was saying there must be justice, and if there's no justice in the world, there's going to be more destruction. And the Hebrew mind, you're not praying in the abstract. You're praying very specifically. So if you're praying for judgment to fall on a guilty sinner, then that's going to mean that that man's wife will be a widow, that his kids will will be orphaned from their father, and so on and so forth. So there's going to be vividness to it. But clearly, the New Testament teaches us to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who persecute us, Jesus hanging on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Stephen getting stoned to death says, Lord, don't lay the sin at their charge. So they are not following the suit of praying down judgment on their enemies. So I agree with you that we pray in general for God to establish his righteousness and to put an end to wickedness. But as I'm doing it, I'm praying for the salvation of the wicked, right? As I'm doing it, I'm praying for for God's intervention. So what I like to do is pattern things on the Lord's Prayer and begin by praying for God's name to be hallowed in the earth. And then you flesh that out. What would it mean? It would mean people of all nations and religions to recognize the one true God, etc. And then you pray right down into your own family, your own life. And then, Lord, your kingdom come. That's a heavy prayer because when when God's kingdom fully arrives— it's going to be great judgment. Jesus, even if we say, even so, come Lord Jesus, we're praying for him to return in, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. So I agree with you in spirit, absolutely. And let's say you live in a community and there's high crime rate and kids are getting killed. Lord, bring your kingdom to this community. Lord, bring repentance, bring salvation, bring deliverance. You know, you know how to do it, Lord. Save uh, as opposed to, Lord, destroy the wicked. So we're praying in that same direction and then leaving it to God to do to, to apply that as, as he sees fit. Would you say that it, it would be a violation, let's say, of 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, to, let's say, to pray that, Lord, if this you know, particular person in power, whether it be in government and business or whatnot, Lord, if they continue to sort of propagate things that are contrary to your word, to remove them from power, in other words, it to eliminate their ability to bring about that which is displeasing to your sight, eliminate their ability to persecute your people, not destroy them in hell, but, you know, Lord, bring them to repentance. I, I would rather, yeah, Sims, I, I appreciate that, uh, and it's certainly a righteous prayer, but I would say, God, your will be done. Your will be done. Because, look, Manasseh, the most wicked king in, in, in Judah's history, he repents at the end of his life, but he reigns the longest of any king, 55 years. Why didn't God remove him? Maybe God was keeping him alive to give him time to repent. Second Peter 3, 9, God's, God's not slack, as we consider slackness, but is, is patient, long-suffering towards us, not only that any should perish, but all should repent, come to repentance. So sometimes God will give, give more grace. Maybe there's a greater purpose in that person staying in power uh, because the person behind them is going to be even worse. You know, look, you, you move, remove Saddam Hussein from Iraq, a lot of good comes, but that creates the void into which ISIS came and all the upheaval came and massive suffering. 
So were the Iraqis better or worse under Saddam Hussein? God knows. So I, I don't presume to know. Now, if I feel specifically led by the Lord to pray for a specific thing in that way, I'll, I'll obey that leading. But normally my prayer is, Lord, have your way. Your best. Bring your kingdom. Uh, because he knows what he's doing. And again, you get rid of one bad person, a worse one may, may come up. Uh, or it may be that if that person stays in power longer, they come to repentance and bring national reformation with them. Great questions. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Joey in Louisville, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Oh, that's uh, Mooresville, North Carolina. But uh, uh, more okay. okay. It's on my screen is Louisville, which I never heard of, but that's good. Mooresville, it is. Thanks. But uh, I appreciate you uh, taking my call, and I had a quick question. Um, of all the Hebrew scholars, I know uh, there's a lot of Hebrew. I mean, well, let's say Old Testament scholars. Which one of the Old Testament scholars actually wrote a book on Hebrews? Because Hebrews is so much of the Old Testament, and it kind of parallels how we should accept the Old Testament. I was just wondering, any Old Testament scholars actually wrote a book on the New Testament book, Hebrews? Yeah, okay, I love the question, and I, and I've got a couple of answers for you. Let, let me first say this, that... Um, there's almost kind of a rule in the realm of scholarship that you stay in your lane. So Old Testament scholars work on Old Testament, New Testament scholars work on New Testament. You, you may do a larger theology than intersects, but because on a scholarly level, so much is required of you. Uh, in other words, there, there has to be so much focus in learning that you can't master everything the same. That being said, uh, Franz Dalich was a great Old Testament and Hebrew scholar in the 1800s. Together with C.F. Kyle, Carl Friedrich Kyle, they did the 10-volume commentary on the Old Testament, uh, what's published in 10 volumes, it's more than that in print. Uh, but but it's, it's um, a classic to this day. But Dalich also wrote a commentary on Hebrews. So Franz Dalich, D-E-L-I-T-Z-S-H. Got that? Uh, and I'm just going to see if it's still in print. I got it years ago in two volumes. Uh, let's see, Dalich, Hebrews. I bet it's still in print. Uh, Dalich's Hebrew New Testament, Hebrew Gospels, Hebrews. All right, you may have to look for that. Okay, but that's, that's one. Um, another is Adolf Safer, and that's uh, S-A-P-H... I R, and he was a Jewish believer in Jesus. He was he was not as much of an Old Testament scholar as Dalich was, but he was a Jewish believer in Jesus and fluent in Hebrew. So he has a commentary in Hebrews. But here's here's what I'm going to also recommend for you. All right, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce was a New Testament scholar, but very very strong in Old Testament as well. Very strong in Dead Sea Scrolls, Hebrew things like that. His commentary on Hebrews uh, fits that bill in many ways as well. Even though he was not uh, an Old Testament scholar per se, he did work in, in, in a lot of Old Testament circles, and he's got a great commentary on Hebrews. So, so that would be from more recent decades. Safer and Dalich would be from the 1800s. Hey, thanks for asking, Jody. I appreciate the question. 866-34-TRUTH. 
Uh, tell you what, we've just got 45 seconds before the break, so we will come back. We'll start with Sebastian in Mexico, then we'll go to Jonathan in Washington, Cassie in St. Louis, Alan in Canada. Uh, we'll get to many calls as we can. Uh, have you seen the prophetic standards statement yet? Uh, this was issued uh, yesterday. It already has several hundred signatures. We had 85 initial signatories, so leaders from denominations, megachurch pastors, leaders of prophetic networks, apostolic leaders, a wide range, and now probably 130-something folks have signed on since it's been up. If you're a leader, a ministry leader, go there, propheticstandards.com. If you believe in prophetic ministry today, look at the statement, and if you affirm it, add your name to it. Uh, this seems to be a historic document as things are unfolding. It's a joint document produced by a number of leaders together, and we believe it's a critical time to put out standards. Propheticstandards.com. Check it out. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, for our, for our last caller, for Jody, uh, I did find on Amazon commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews, Dalich, in print. Looks like it's a reproduction, in fact, some of the reproduction of the original. All right, uh, we go to Sebastian in Mexico. Thanks for calling The Line of Fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Hello. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, two things, mainly. Um, i always been in search of the truth. Um, whatever God wants from me, that's what I will want. Mm-hmm. And, well, I know a lot of the Jewish objections to Jesus' Messiahship. I watch a lot of... Uh, Jews for Judaism and Rabbi Toby Singer videos. I have talked with a local Habat rabbi. And I still don't know how to answer some of them. Like the main ones, they say that he hasn't brought world peace. The world is not covered with the knowledge of the Torah. And, well, you know which ones. Mm-hmm. So, and um, also, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. And I don't know which. In case of Jesus being the Messiah, I don't know what, what is like the right path to follow him. I, like almost all Mexicans, I grew up Roman Catholic from a very devout family, but I have some of the doubts of my faith in like the Roman Church. I don't know if it's the one true church as they claim. So yeah, I have also doubts. What's like the yeah right? Well, Sebastian, I, I appreciate your your honesty. Uh, so, I'm not sure if you're aware of the five books that I've written that demolish the counter missionary arguments, and then the 32 hour or 32 lecture series that we have free online, or another 22 hour uh, DVD course on countering the counter missionaries. Have have you? Uh, and then my videos specifically refuting Tobias Singer. Have you taken advantage of, of these and, and you still have the questions or you haven't heard the answers that we've brought to these questions? I have heard 
Some of them, uh, not, not all. But ah, yeah, all right. Okay, well, we've, we've got the answers for you. There's nothing difficult whatsoever. Uh, the Hebrew Bible makes plain that, that there are two phases to the Messiah's work. The Talmud even asks, is he coming in the clouds of heaven as per Daniel 7? Or is he coming meek and lowly riding on a donkey as per Zechariah 9? And the Talmud says, if we, we repent, we're righteous, he'll come in the clouds of heaven. If not, he'll come riding on a donkey. Whereas the Bible doesn't say either or. The Bible says both. The Bible speaks of his great exaltation, and the Bible speaks of his great suffering. And it indicates there are two phases to his work. First, he had to come and die for our sins and rise from the dead before the second temple was destroyed, according to biblical prophecy. He would then be rejected by his own people and become a light to the nations. And it was only then that he would come in the clouds of heaven and establish his kingdom on the earth, at which point there would be peace. So the, the Bible clearly lays out two different aspects of his mission. It speaks of him as being a priestly king. Remember Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the man whose name is the branch in Zechariah, the sixth chapter, who, who is it? It's Yehoshua, the high priest, also known in the Hebrew Bible as Yeshua, Jesus. Yehoshua, the high priest, sits on a throne with a crown on his head, symbolizing the branch. So the Messiah is symbolized as a priestly king. Uh, so as a priest, he deals with our sin. As a priest, he, he, he suffers for us and makes atonement. And then when he returns and establishes his kingdom, he fulfills his royal role. And traditional Judaism has forgotten, by and large, about the priestly role of the Messiah. So the reason he hasn't established peace on earth is it's not time for that part of the mission yet. You say, well, how, maybe it's someone else. No, the only possible candidate had to live, die, be rejected, rise from the dead before the second temple was destroyed. Uh, almost 2,000 years ago. So there's only one possible candidate for that. Who was it that was rejected by his people and has become a light to the world? One and only, Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, what I'd encourage you to do, Sebastian, is, is on, my, on my YouTube channel, there's a whole series, and it's free for everyone. Uh, anyone can watch this. Um, so if you look for the videos, there's a video series uh, answering your toughest questions. And it, it's, actually, it's actually 32 half-hour lectures that, that we uh, recorded just, um, just answering your toughest questions specifically um, on Jesus being the Messiah. So watch those. They're all free. That's at AskDrBrown.org or ask, just AskDrBrown on YouTube, ASKDRBrown. And then... Uh, search for the word Tovia, and you'll see videos. We put out about four or five so far exposing his lies. I'm talking about lies. I'm talking about deception. I'm talking about when he's telling you one thing and the truth is somewhere else. So take advantage of those. If any questions come up along the way, just email us, and I've got uh, a team member who just focuses on answering Jewish-related questions. So that'll help you. There's no reason for the doubts. I was hit with all these. I studied the scriptures. I got on my face and I said, God, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, and, I, I, and I'm going to follow you, whatever the cost or the consequence. 
And if Jesus is really the Messiah, as I believe, I don't care if the whole Jewish community rejects me, I've got to honor you. If he's not the Messiah, I don't care what reproach I suffer, I'm, I'm going to reject him. I only want the truth. And the more I studied and prayed, the clearer everything became. So take advantage of those resources. If you can't find them, just shoot us an email via the website. As, as for the church you want to be part of, examine everything based on the grid of Scripture. So if you see the practices of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, the veneration of Mary, the Mass, if you see that taught in the Bible, especially the New Testament, then that's where you want to be. If you see that's not taught, then you would seek out an evangelical church, gospel-preaching church, uh, that is just based on Scripture minus church tradition. And uh, the Lord will lead you. Uh, And then above all, Get really close to God in your personal life. Last thought for you, Sebastian, all right? If Jesus is not the Messiah, then what has God done in a redemptive way to reach out to the whole world to reveal himself? You say, well, he chose Israel. Well, he chose Israel. Israel's not revealing God to the world, and Israel itself is quite mixed. So what has God done to reveal his love for the whole world if Jesus is not the Messiah? He, he hasn't, which is an abhorrent thought. That, that he's waited all this time and has not revealed himself to the whole world and given the whole world an opportunity to believe in him. So our faith is, is on a very, very firm foundation. So Sebastian, check out those resources. Go through the videos. I believe your faith will really be built up as you do. And then just consider which church follows the scriptures most accurately. All right? All right. I got one little more question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, do you have a scripture that can refute uh, the Jehovah Witness position on Jesus? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole Bible refutes Jehovah's Witness doctrine. What in particular? Well, Jesus being God, of course. Uh, yeah, how about John twenty twenty eight when Thomas, after the resurrection, says to him, my Lord and my God. How's that work? Uh, how about Hebrews... Yeah. How about Hebrews 1.8, where the Son is explicitly called God in Hebrews yeah, 1.8? Yeah, I have quoted that one, though, when Thomas called uh, Jesus my Lord and my God, and they would say, well, I don't know, but the Bible has to be taken into consideration, not just one scripture. Right, so Isaiah 9.6, that, that the Messiah is called Mighty God, that John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God, not a God. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. John 20, 28, my Lord and my God. Hebrews 1, 8, that the Son is called God explicitly. And then in the book of Revelation, the Father and the Son are both called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the whole Bible uh, utterly demolishes Jehovah's Witnesses. If you want more on that, go to CARM, C-A-R-M.org, CARM.org. And just click on Jehovah's Witnesses. Hey, it's pretty clear, though, chatting with you, that you need to spend more time reading the Word, getting closer to God, than watching stuff from cults, false religions, counter-missionary rabbis. What you want to do is be building yourself up in God more, eating food that is healthy for your soul, that will nourish you and nurture you and strengthen you. And then you'll be able to reach the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Jewish community and others. Sometimes we can 
get so absorbed with, okay, I, I want to be sure I'm following the truth, so let me check out what this one says, this one says, that one says, that you never get built up. Put down good, deep roots for yourself. Put down solid spiritual roots. You say, but I have a lot of questions. I understand that. Trust me. I, I lived through that as a Jewish believer in Jesus, bombarded by, by the rabbis in those early years as they lovingly reached out to me to try to change my views. But what I'm saying is, spending quality time with God is going to be the key. Having a solid relationship with him and saying, God, I just want to follow the truth. Give me a heart for truth, praising him, loving him, and then taking in scripture, not just intellectually dealing with objections, drink in the words of Jesus. Read his words in in John 14, 15, 16. Read his words through the New Testament read the letters and drink in the wisdom and truth of God. It'll build you up and then you'll be able to help others all the more effectively. All right. Thank you for the call. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. You've got questions. We've got answers. Get into as many calls as we can, but taking a little bit more time with some of our callers as needed today. Uh, let's go to Cassie in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome to The Line of Fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I want to start off by saying I appreciate the long-term work that you and your associates have done over the years in keeping current and study the research and having the courage to speak hard truth. And um, it's done it for decades, and I appreciate it. I was wanting to ask you if you would consider um, Galatians 6.11 in light of the Apostle Paul's born in the flesh. It reads, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my handwriting. I know our focus as Christians should not be on what it was, but on Christ's strength and overcoming our weakness. But I'm curious, and I heard someone say, could it possibly be a type of eye or vision disorder, or could it possibly be a persecution? Right. To me, the most likely understanding of Paul's thorn that he references in 2 Corinthians 12 is extreme and unusually intense persecution that he endured. Uh, if, if, you, if you look at the, the use of the word weakness through First and Second Corinthians, which is a major theme, as opposed to being strong in oneself or super self-confident, that, that God uses the weak to confound the strong— uh, and, and the foolish to confound the wise. 1 Corinthians 2, that's 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says that he came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and much trembling. That theme comes up repeatedly. The critics in 2 Corinthians 10 said, well, his, his, bodily, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. And then in the 11th chapter of, of 1 Corinthians, he said, if, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that, that show my weaknesses, the 11th and 12th chapter, uh, and he, he outlines the persecutions, the abuse that he took. 
And then very specifically in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as, as he's talking about this, this thorn that was given to torment him. And torment normally refers to people, um, but it's a messenger of Satan, right? So this, this thorn was given him to harass him, to keep him from being conceited. Three times he pleaded with the Lord about it, that it should leave him. But the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon thee. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So it would seem if, if the goal of this was Satan was allowed to torment him, to keep him humble because of the revelations he got, then you just think of this, you finish preaching your message, and instead of going back to the crowd of believers like, Paul, that was amazing. We've never heard a teaching like that. That was incredible. Instead, he's getting dragged out of the city and stoned, or he's getting beaten and thrown in some dungeon pit somewhere. That will certainly keep you humble. So my view is that that's the most likely understanding of the thorn. But this has been debated for centuries through church history. Some have pointed to the very verse you did and said that Paul had an eye disorder. Others thought he suffered from subtype of malaria. Or, you know, he mentions early in Galatians that, that it was because of a physical weakness that he was with him. Most interpret that as, as a bodily infirmity and that he was there at, at that place because he was sick. Others say that that's not the right way to interpret the Greek, but most translations read it like that. Um, there have been many, many different understandings. The, the medieval monks thought that it was sexual temptation because obviously they were dealing with that and projected it back on Paul. So it could have been a physical illness. Uh, you know, here, one other verse in, in, in Galatians that people used to, to point to that uh, in the fourth chapter, when he's talking about the, the love that they, they had for them, uh, he said, I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. But I think that's just a figure of speech for like, you would have done anything for me. So my view, intense, unusual persecution, Satan buffeting him, and those are the weaknesses that he speaks of in the 11th and 12th chapters of 2 Corinthians 12. But we don't know for sure. Thank you so much. It gives me a lot to consider. Great, great. Well, good. And key thing, look for the word weak weakness through First and Second Corinthians. There are three different forms, nominal and verbal, that come up. But you'll see it in English when it's weak, weakness. And then sometimes in King James, infirmity, but really it, Weak in most of the cases is the right way to, to read it. All right, <clears throat> let's see. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let us go to uh, Greg in Archdale, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Okay, thanks, Mark. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, my question is, is uh, these names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, James, Peter, Paul, are these real actual names? Those don't seem like Israel people have those names. Seem more like American names, like even John the Baptist when when he was born. When his dad said we're going to name him John, is like where are you coming up with this name? There's nobody in the family. That's Got it. Wondering, are those real names? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let me, let me explain. Number one, uh, Isaiah is not a Hebrew name. Yeshayahu is the Hebrew name. Ezekiel is not a Hebrew name. Yehezkel is a Hebrew name. Uh, Moses. Is, is not the, the Hebrew name, it's, it's Moshe. Uh, Josiah is not a Hebrew name, it's Yoshiahu. So what we have in English 
is it is the original names in Hebrew and then in Greek for the New Testament coming into Latin and then to whatever other language and then ultimately into English. So originally John was Yochanan. Originally Matthew was Matityahu. Um, originally James was Yaakov. Uh, now Paul was Paulus. He also had the name Shaul. So at birth, being born in a, in a, as a Greek citizen, he would have had a Hebrew name and a Greek name at least, maybe even a Latin name. So he was always Shaul and Paulus. When he was in the Jewish world, the Hebrew-speaking or Aramaic-speaking Ar- Ar- world, he was Shaul. In the Greek-speaking world, he was Paulus. Uh, and, and then when he goes on his mission to the Gentiles, he's always called Paulus, uh, Paul. So, yeah, the, Mary, Mary doesn't exist in the Bible. It's Miriam. Uh, but yeah. it's M- Miriam, then as it comes into Greek, it changes. And then from Greek into Latin, Latin ultimately into English. So that's how we have these names. Uh, but originally, you know, uh, Mark, would have, uh, Mark would have been a Greek name, not a Hebrew name. And that, that comes to us pretty close. So some are closer than others. Uh, you know, Elijah and Elisha, in Hebrew, that's Eliyahu and Elisha. They sound very different. English, they sound very similar. So that's just the way they get passed from Hebrew, Greek, Latin into English. That's all. Just like, you know, in, in my name, Michael, is Michael. So Michael's not a Hebrew name. Michael is. But if I was in, born in Mexico, it'd be Miguel, right? Yeah. So same names, just as they make their way through. But... Here's the thing you're on to, that the, the roots of it, the New Testament roots, are very Jewish. That Messiah's name is Yeshua, and his mother's name is Miriam. Uh, and, and he has disciples with names like Yaakov and Yochanan and things like that, and Yehuda. So, yeah, and, and the, the book of James is really the book of Jacob. So let's, let's recover some of that, all right? Okay. All right. Okay, thanks. That's, I was thinking it was probably different, but I thought maybe the way you explained it. Makes yeah, sense. yeah. And, and by the way, with John not being in the family, it wasn't that it was a foreign name. Yochanan was a good Hebrew name. It's just they didn't have anyone with that name. And there's a tradition sometimes that the child would be named after the grandfather. Not the father, but the grandfather. So, hey, thanks for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Jonathan in Clarkston, Washington. Thanks for calling the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, my qu- oh, am I on? What's am I, is that an echo? Not to me. I'm not hearing one. Are you talking oh. right in your phone? Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I have a I have a mic uh, attached to my phone. Anyway, uh, so uh, I was having this conversation with a friend, a uh, member of my congregation, just the other day. Uh, she said to me that she believes that space aliens exist. And so I said to her, well, that doesn't really make any sense, biblically speaking, for reasons X, Y, and Z. And then she responded with, uh, well, maybe God had nothing to do with the aliens. And so that, that kind of threw me off completely because that seems like a very dangerous thing to believe. Uh, although she does believe in the atonement and the resurrection and all that stuff, to say that God had nothing to do with the space aliens, that seems very dangerous. However, I didn't actually 
confront her any further on that because she's also the legal guardian of the children that I disciple. So I, I don't want to confront her on it for fear that I would no longer be able to disciple uh, th- those children. But uh, so my, I guess my first question is, how, how dangerous is that to believe that? And the second question is, uh, if I were to address it at all, how would I go about doing that? Right. So it's it's dangerous in that it's saying that there are beings out there that God didn't create. So that's bizarre. The idea that there's anything that exists. Uh, I'm not talking about a philosophical thing like the existence of evil. I'm talking about the earth, the universe, dogs, cats, trees, angels, that there's anything that exists that God didn't create. Well, where did it come from? Who created it? And if God is not the ruler of the universe and the one, in, the one who knows everything at all times, if, that's, if he's not that, then who is he? So that would be the bizarre thing. I, you know, I'd find out what she means, like maybe God had nothing to do with it. I'd ask, well, who created the aliens? i just ask. It's not a hill to die on, obviously, um, and you want to be able to minister to these kids. But you don't want to you don't want to neglect the, the legal guardian in terms of, of her needs. So I would just ask, well, where did they come from? Who did who created them? If God had nothing to do with them, then where did they come from? Now, you, you I agree with you that the idea of aliens uh, is, is alien to me and that you get this idea of God creating the whole universe and then the center being what he's doing on the earth and with his son, Jesus. Now, could it be that there are other universes with other beings, but they're not, they're more like angels? Yeah, who, who knows what exists in terms of other angelic creatures and things like that. Uh, but it seems the whole plan of redemption, us being with him forever and, and everything coming through Jesus would point to us being the, the form of rational life here, you know, just on the earth. But either way, I would just ask, okay, where did they come from? Who are, if, if God had nothing to do with them, then is he God? Is he the God of the Bible? That's what I press. Because it says in the Bible he created everything. It says in the Bible that he's the king and he rules. And if he's got nothing to do with them, who are they? Where did they come from? May the Lord give you wisdom, Jonathan. That's a first for me. Thank you. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the broadcast. If you don't get my emails, please take a moment. Go to AskDrBrown.org, AskDrBrown.org. Click right there to sign on emails. It be right on, the, on your homepage, on your tablet or smartphone or computer. And then when you do, you'll get a few emails from me right off the bat, just sharing more of my testimony with you from LSD to PhD, some of the burdens of our ministry, the three R's that we emphasize, different ways that we can serve you, resources available. And then you'll hear from us weekly, a couple times a week, latest videos, latest articles, latest special resources, special offers made available only to our email list. So make sure you take a minute, askdrbrown.org, sign up for our emails. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Richard in Manitoba, Canada. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, sir. Good. Um, well, I, 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 have, uh, I respect you. Uh, 
the, but there there are certain there are certain things that uh, that you said in a recent video about the Sabbath that that I want to uh, um, uh, deal with. Sure, if I may, please. All right. So uh, first of all, there, there was an argument that he made that the Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel. Uh, Exodus thirty one verses thir- uh, thirteen and seventeen. Uh, now that that that's true. Uh, considering that that Israel was was to be God's special people, and they were they were uh, elected to uh, be a light to the Gentiles to to show the nations uh, about the, the the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, the gen- but the, the the Gentiles, the whole reason that God established Israel as He did was was to was to uh, show who He was through His people, and mm-hmm. and and. And the Gentiles were to be grafted into the stock of Israel, and we see that in Isaiah fifty-six verses six through eight, and Romans chapter eleven. All right. So just so, just to be clear, then, uh, all of the commandments of the Torah—that was God working through Israel to reveal Himself and to call Israel to be a separate nation. Correct. Yes. Right. So, for example, if you get mildew in your house, then you follow the prescriptions laid out in Leviticus fourteen. And if you have a disobedient and rebellious teenager that refused to repent, you bring them to the elders of the city and you stone them to death. Is that correct? Well, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm not making. I'm not making making the case that uh, that all of the 613 or so commandments in the Torah are are directly applicable to to God's people today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there were there were uh, changes in 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 the um, there were changes in the requirements that God had. Got for, it. for for his people, whereas Israel was was a nation in in the in the in the the ancient Near East, now um, now Israel includes both Jews and Gentiles who who uh, who worship God all over the world. Well, where where does the New Testament ever call Gentiles Israel? Paul writes to the Gentiles in Romans eleven, and says, "I'm writing to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, because I want to make my people Israel envious." Where does the New Testament ever call Gentiles Israel? Well, uh, I think I think that he uh, may do that in Galatians, where he talks about the Israel of God versus the Israel of the flesh. Oh, certainly he not. Says, no, certainly not there. Galatians six sixteen, he says, "Peace upon all who follow this rule and the Israel of God." In other words, Jewish believers in the Messiah. He's not throwing them under the bus. But he's just spent the whole book of Galatians telling the Galatians that they don't have to come under the law to be justified. The last thing he would do is confuse that now and call them the Israel of God. And the most natural way to read the Greek is, he's talking about all those who follow this rule that I've laid out for you Gentiles, and also, hey, I'm not throwing them under the bus, the Israel of God, Jewish believers. The fact fact is he explicitly calls Gentile Christians in the New Testament Gentiles. It's It's not a bad word. It can be negative like pagans, or just the people of the nations. So it's well, Jew well, and Gentile he, he together. Would, he would do that to make to make a distinction between those who who were ethnic, ethnically right. Israelites, like descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right, but you, and, but you made so, a very those who were, those who were grafted into the community of faith. But right, but that's not Israel. They're not grafted into Israel. They're grafted into the larger commonwealth of Israel, to the larger body, to the ecclesia. So he he never calls them Israel. But, I mean, you just stated it as if it was a fact, and I just felt it's important to, to point that out. So, anyway, so, so let, let's try to focus this in better, okay? We both agree 
that as followers of Jesus today, that we are not obligated to keep all the 613 commandments and that changes have come. For example, blood sacrifice fulfilled in Jesus. So we, we agree on that, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so where in the New Testament does it ever teach Gentiles to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath? Because we know from the early church that the Gentile Christians didn't do this and that they even wondered why the Jews continued to do it, Jewish believers over the centuries. But what would be your text where the New Testament explicitly tells, tells Gentile Christians to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath? What, what would you find as the strongest text for that? Well, uh, th- that actually leads nicely into, into the other argument that, that I have here, which is nowhere yeah. in the New Testament are Gentiles ordered to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Now, now that... Uh, that is uh, th- that is true in 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 the sense that uh, there is no single explicit command for for Gentiles to to keep to keep the Sabbath, but the Book of Acts uh, I argue shows that Gentile proselytes to Second Temple Judaism and later to the Way were accustomed to keeping the Seventh Day Sabbath and continued uh, to to do so. Well, they were, uh, they were accustomed to keeping the the biblical calendar, the feasts, the holy days all of the calendar, etc. But it would have been the perfect place, Acts 15, to say to keep that, but they didn't. And, and then elsewhere, in Romans 14, in Romans 14, where you had a community of believers, of Jew and Gentile together, he's very explicit that some set one day apart, others don't honor and respect each other. And then Colossians 2, a warning about anyone pressuring you to keep the Sabbath or new moon because the these are just the shadow. The substance is the Messiah. So you have a warning against pressure to keep the Sabbath in Colossians 2. And you have Romans 14 explicitly saying that you have different believers in your midst with different convictions about setting a day aside or not. So he, he does address these things. Well, well it's, uh, I actually have uh, something to say regarding uh, Acts chapter 15. It's actually in the scriptures that I, that I referenced in, in the thing I have written down here about uh, about Gentile proselytes being accustomed to keeping the Sabbath. If you read in uh, Acts chapter 15 before the the resolution is is uh, is written down for for the Gentiles, James uh, gets up and says, "Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them from which among the Gentiles are turned to God, but we mm-hmm. write unto them." that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood, because Moses of old time hath in every city, has in every city, them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Right. And, and Paul doesn't get kicked out of the synagogue until uh, later in the book of Acts after this was, uh, after James gives this. Uh, well, no, Paul's already kicked out of the synagogue in Acts 9. He's got to flee for his life. He? Yeah, oh, X9. No, no, X X9. He's he's kicked out. He he he's kicked out of sitting or he's got a yeah, X9 is first place he gets kicked out of. Uh he's got oh, he's got to well, run my, for his my, my 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 mistake. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I mean I mean not not physically kicked out, but he's preaching and then he's got to flee from Damascus for his life. He's got to be let down by a basket. Yeah, so he's in constant controversy. Acts 13, he leaves the synagogue and says, "Okay, your blood's on your own hands." Fine. I'm going to the Gentiles. That's Acts 13. But here, here, sir, what's, what's, being, what's being said is simply that they'll get this. In other words, what we're telling them about the, the idolatry 
and, and don't be polluted by idols from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled from blood. They'll get this because they've already heard this stuff in the synagogue. That's what it's saying. And then everything else gets, gets built on that in the rest of the New Testament. And, and you see in the end of Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me and find rest, that then goes right into Matthew 12, where there's a dispute about healing on the Sabbath and things. So I, I, would, I would encourage you to continue to look at this. Don't separate the Sabbath and put it just in a special category. And then ask yourself, why is it that as the church grew and became predominantly Gentile, that Seventh-day Sabbath, it wasn't even an option because in the world they lived, that was a work day, right? Why, why is it that it was the Jewish followers of the Messiah that continued to keep the Sabbath and the Gentile Christians that didn't well, it wasn't a command given to them. One other passage to consider, and, and I appreciate, I did try to take some time. I, I know this could go on as, as a great de- debate, obviously. Uh, but we've, we've discussed Sabbath so many times that, that I, I want to be respectful of others too. But one other passage, make sure you look at this, 1 Corinthians 7, where, where Paul is writing to the believers there. Just want to make sure I start with the right reference. Beginning verse 17, right? I had it right in my head. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 only that each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, meaning called to salvation? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts nor or anything, uh, for anything nor uncircumcision means in terms of salvation, but keeping the commandments of God. So, a Gentile believer does not become a Jew. A Jew doesn't become a Gentile. But we are one in Jesus, the Messiah. Hey, we may have a respectful difference here. That's fine. And in my own life, Seventh-day Sabbath, unless I'm ministering, yeah, that is reality for me. So we may have a respectful difference here, which is fine. God bless you, man. Thank you for the call. Sorry I didn't get to more calls today. We took a little more time with some different callers. But we'll keep the phones open through the weeks. God bless. Another program powered by the Truth Network.